This is episode 248 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Get access to studio-level insider information, including sneak peeks at the making of our show, when you become a patron today. Sign up at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. Hi, I'm Professor Cheryl Fiore. I'm a maritime social historian. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Someone like Shakespeare would write home and give letters to a carrier. It would take about three days to get from London to Stratford-upon-Avon. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. There are many examples of letter writing from Shakespeare's plays, including letters getting lost in transit and even examples of letter forgery. While many of the examples from Shakespeare's plays about how letters were handled is amplified to be more entertaining on stage, these examples represent real history about how letters were written and how they were delivered for the life of William Shakespeare. Here today to help us explore the tools, systems, and methods that were used to write a letter during Shakespeare's lifetime, including special tricks like letter locking and even sealing a letter, is our guest and co-curator of the Letter Writing in Renaissance England exhibit at the Folgers Shakespeare Library, Alan Stewart. Alan Stewart is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, specializing in early modern literature, history, and culture. His books include biographies of Francis Bacon, Philip Sidney, and King James VI and I, and studies of Shakespeare's letters and early modern life writing. You can find out more about Alan and his work, including links to the exhibit at the Folger, in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Alan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. Good to be here. What tools were used for writing letters during Shakespeare's lifetime? A lot of tools. Uh, it's the one huge difference between writing a letter now in whatever means or and writing a letter then. To start with, you need a desk, some sort of surface, probably something which has some sort of incline. You need a pen, but a pen in those days is a quill taken from a goose, perhaps, or a raven, if you can get one. The quill then needs to be sharpened using a penknife, which is where we get the term from. And in fact, you have to keep sharpening the pen the pen all the time with a knife. So a lot of the manuals in the period suggest you actually write with two hands, with the penknife in your left hand. The penknife needs to be sharpened, so you need a whetstone for that. The ink needs to be made, probably by yourself, because as far as we know, people didn't go out and buy ink. And ink is a complicated recipe that involves what are called ghouls, which are the excrescence of, of trees, mainly oak trees, mixed in a solution of resin and wine or vinegar or rainwater. All kinds of recipes exist. You also need an ink stand to put the ink in. You need dust in order to put a layer over the ink when you've finished and probably a dust box for that. 
And then you need all the things that you'll need to send the letter, wax, sealing thread, and a seal. So all of those things are needed to do a letter in a, in a proper way in the period. Quite an involved undertaking to it begin is. a letter. It is indeed. And it's, it's why I think you, never, you very rarely see people writing letters on the Shakespearean stage. It, it would actually inquire, uh, require a lot of props to be brought on. To, to make accomplish that. it visually, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was under the impression that literacy was low during Shakespeare's lifetime. So how were people who were largely illiterate able to write and then send letters that obviously requires a person to be able to both read and write? I think it's a really good question. And I think it's something we haven't quite got our heads around. A lot of social historians spend a lot of time working out who was literate and they have, okay, what, what, what makes a person literate? Is it that a person can sign their name or is it that a person can read or is it that a person can write more than their name? Each of those could have some level of literacy attached to it. But I think what's important is that ultimately you don't need all the parties involved to have any level of literacy in order for people to be involved in a letter writing culture. If you need a letter written for you, you can go and pay someone or ask someone to write it. If you need a letter read to you, then you get you go and get someone to read it to you. The question, in a way, is, is the wrong question because letter writing culture does not presume literacy on the part of all its all its participants. Well, that's exciting. What does it mean then? I mean, how was it ordinary for someone to go and, and hire somebody to write and read their letters for them? Where who was this person they would hire and where would they find them? The person that you would hire if you were sort of if you were not part of the elite, should we say, is probably a scrivener. There would be someone locally whose job it was usually to draw up legal documents. That was that was what scriveners did for a living, but they could also be used for all kinds of other letter writing tasks and copying tasks when you get higher up the social scale you then find people having someone on their staff who will write for them usually we'd call them a secretary so there are kind of there are different levels of secretarial and scrivener and scribe capacities that, that people could draw on most people certainly in a town setting would have access to one of these people quite easily um, not for free necessarily, but certainly not. It's not difficult to find someone. Almost the same thing as as going to the post office. There would be an an office or a, a someone that you go to for for your secretarial needs. I think that's right. I mean, the closest we might have in the states today is a notary, an authorized notary, which you sometimes need if you're getting some sort of document sent and you need some that weird stamp that <laughs> needs to be put on some documents. And you know we don't all have a permanent notary in our lives, but you can usually find one if you need if you need one. So, who were the most famous secretaries from Shakespeare's lifetime? Were were they secretaries hired to be on retainer, or I, I'm understanding from what you're saying, some of them are just case by case basis when you need them. But I, I guess I'm wondering if individuals like Shakespeare would have had a secretary, or if we know the names of some of these people who worked in this capacity. We know the names of people at the very top of the tree. I think, I mean, we certainly have, and we still have the, the phrase today, a secretary of state. The principal secretary in the country was given that title because they were doing a lot of writing and reading tasks for the monarch or for the senior government officers. And so in Elizabeth's reign, we have people like um, Sir William Cecil, and Sir Francis Walsingham, and then Sir Robert Cecil at the end of her reign, 
who all worked as her secretary. And that would include some things which we might see as being quite menial, the drafting and penning of letters, as well as some more high-level administrative tasks. I work on Francis Bacon quite a lot, and he, although we know him, he was a, a major philosopher and lawyer and essayist and parliamentarian, but he also worked in a kind of quasi-secretarial capacity in the 1590s for the Earl of Essex, writing some of his letters, writing some of his tracts. And so there are, I think, all the way up the ladder, there are people whose textual skills made them very useful as secretaries. So what about sending letters? In in Shakespeare's plays, like Romeo and Juliet, we see a messenger get caught by plague on his way to deliver a letter. Was that a plot point chosen by Shakespeare, or is that actually how letters were delivered during Shakespeare's lifetime? Was it a real risk that your letter delivery person would get caught by plague and, and leave your letter out just in the wind somewhere? Well, again, there are kind of multiple levels of how letters might be sent. Certainly at the upper end of society, there are personal bearers and messengers who would take a letter from one country house to another country house or from one city to another or even over the channel to Europe. I think in practice, people used a range of possibilities. If you know someone who is traveling a lot for business, for example, I'm sure that they would be given a lot of mail to hand on when they reach their destination. The one area where we have a little bit more information, and which is more of a system, is what was called the carrier system. And carriers were men who went from town to town with carts laden with goods and some people, and also letters. So we know that someone like Shakespeare would write home and give letters to a carrier who would take about three days to get from London to Stratford-upon-Avon and then would make the journey back. And so that that is a kind of very primitive system um, in which letters are being treated just like a parcel of food. Yes, we don't see much of that on Shakespeare's stage, that system. There's a mention of them. There's a very brief scene in Henry the Fourth, Part One, which has the carrier system. But Shakespeare seems to have decided to use the much more uh, friendly version of the, the messenger, the bearer of a letter. And that's real, but of course it's heightened for the stage. The postal service that you we've referenced here in conversation, that, that we know today didn't exist for Shakespeare. But what about postal routes? I mean, this this carrier system that you're talking about, where there's specific roads or paths that were known as letter delivery places, or were there specific collection points where someone in Stratford-upon-Avon, for example, would know to, where to go to meet this carrier to receive the letter Shakespeare had sent home? How how did the system work there? Okay, so the the first thing that's like a postal system in the modern sense is when is in 1635, so 20 years after Shakespeare's death, when Charles II opens up the Royal Mail, um, mainly to make some money, I think, by getting people to use his mail service, private mail service, to send their letters. The carrier system does have very established routes along all the main roads. I mean, everything is very centralised, so a lot of these routes go into London. But we know, for example, that the carrier route from Stratford-on-Avon went through Oxford and High Wycombe on its way into London. And because it takes three days, they used to stay overnight in 
carriers ins on the way i believe and i've written on this that the the carriers coming into london had a particular inn that they usually stayed at and we have evidence of that in the 1630s certainly um there's actually a, a manual a kind of a, a book that's printed to tell you where the carriers for each of the towns and cities elsewhere in london would be based in london and so i think what happens is that someone if say shakespeare is in london on a long stay he would know where to go and get his mail a particular inn and that seems to have been a way in which people could keep in touch across these long distances in england in the period so the carrier themselves that was transporting the letters they wouldn't be charged with going and finding whoever the letter was intended for in the town the expectation was that the people would know to expect letters and be checking in with the carrier to to ask about mail that's a really good question i i imagine it's a bit of both i think the i think the standard is that you would go to where the carrier was coming but it may also be that the carrier was paid extra to 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 go and find the person to, to go and find the person or to find to get someone else to go and find the person there are sometimes you see on the outside of letters in the period the instruction give these and i wonder whether that might actually be a much more specific instruction than it might at first appear the other other letters could be left to be picked up and but some of them needed to be handed directly to the person in question i mean it's it's so difficult to find out exactly what happens with with this kind of system because it was taken for granted in the period so no one writes about it sure it was just this everyday thing and now we have no evidence except kind of suppositions guesses based on what's actually in and on these letters well one of the places that we do find little tidbits of evidence about how things might have worked comes up in shakespeare's plays sometimes and one of the relationships with letters that i want to ask you about is when we see letters being read out loud upon delivery in shakespeare's plays like many i had always assumed that Doing that on stage was for the audience's benefit, obviously, because as an audience member, you can't see what the letter says. So I thought that was put in there for dramatic effect. But in looking into some of your research, I wonder if it was customary in the 16th and 17th century for letters to be read aloud when they were delivered to somebody. I think that that is a very difficult question to answer. I th- there's been a lot of work about the rise of silent reading, the idea that there was a shift in the medieval period from orality to literacy that that people learn how to read silently and yet there's been some recent work which suggests that that the the reading out loud part of reading was still very prevalent in elizabethan england that you know people at school boys at school were taught to read out loud that a lot of their exercises were done verbally i so i think there is there's far more of an oral aspect to this than we might expect on the other hand i don't think that every, every letter that was received was read out in the way it is in you know, in a shakespeare play i think some of that clearly is for dramatic effect but i also wouldn't imagine that some of the most high ranking officials and royalty would actually sit down and read their own correspondence i think a lot of that was mediated by another reader and that but that also means then that the people writing the letters knew that and were careful to make sure that the information they have in the letter is going to the right person and not being read out accidentally by somebody else. 
Which was my thought when you were talking about the Secretary of State and the fact that monarchs and heads of state would have someone whose job it was to both write and read the correspondence. There's a great deal of opportunity there for subterfuge, I think. And I, I can't imagine that was lost on people like Elizabeth, certainly, which which leads me to wonder about things like secret letters. I've seen some scholarship done on secret letters, and it, it's the idea that you don't want the contents of your letter to be made public and certainly not read aloud for general hearing. So when you had sort of secret correspondence or I think even like government level communiques for for lack of a better term. How were these kinds of letters delivered in in a society where you had multiple people handling the document along its journey? There are I think multiple answers to that question. The the most obvious one which we can still see is the use of ciphers. And this is particularly the case in the 17th century and during the civil wars in England where you'll open a letter and it's just full of a series of letters and numbers. Um, it really announces itself as a code. And the idea that was that the, the cipher would have been pre-delivered to the recipient, and then all the letters between these people would have been written in a code, which can be quite easily broken, but it just it at least gives you a few hours if the letter is intercepted. Um, it'll take a while to, for that letter to be coded. There are also some fun... I, examples of people writing in things like orange juice and lemon juice which can only be seen when letters held up to the light or another another solution is put on the letter um i'm not convinced that was a particularly prevalent way of sending letters but there's also been some research recently on and it sounds strange but on the le- way that letters were folded and sealed um what's called the locking of a letter which it seems different offices of the of the government, for example, had different ways of folding their letters so that individuals receiving them, or certainly officials receiving letters, could tell where a letter was from. And it may be that certain elements like don't open this letter in public can be encoded in the way the letter is folded or in the way the letter is superscribed on the outside, where the, where the address is, what we'd call the address is written. So I think that there are, you get it certainly in bureaucracies where there is a much higher level of playing with these the, the the letters material qualities that can then be read off and give a level of secrecy that brings up a good point when you talked about how the address is written on the outside and you said what we would call the address people like shakespeare didn't have an address because there was no postal service so there was no need for things like a box number how would somebody instruct a carrier what what would have been on the front of that letter for Shakespeare's lifetime it's usually I mean a letter of course in this period there's no envelope so it's just a large piece of paper a folio folded into and then folded again and folded again and and then a given a, a seal on it and it usually says something like to my right honorable friend so and so give these it, it will just it will usually have a name sometimes it will have something closer to what we see as an address. It might be the name of an inn or a particular place. But most of the letters I've seen have really been to a person and don't have anything like an address on them. We live in a postal system which is very much fixated on zip codes and addresses and apartment buildings and apartment numbers. And there's nothing comparable in the early modern period. Letters are usually addressed to an individual. And only rarely do you find any kind of 
geographical address added to that. Well, we've mentioned a couple of places in Shakespeare's plays that letters appear with the idea of the the messenger and the carrier system and, of course, reading the letters out loud. But I wonder if you could share with us any examples we might have overlooked from Shakespeare's plays that represent historical realities about letter writing that do show up in Shakespeare's plays. Uh, One of my favorite letters is in Hamlet. Hamlet has a lot of letters in it, actually. But it's a, a sequence where Hamlet is discussing how he was going to England with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he found that they had a commission signed by his stepfather, Claudius, which was they would take it, they were going to give this letter to the King of England, and it contained instructions to kill Hamlet. And Hamlet then said talks about the ways in the way in which he rewrote the letter and it's a very complicated set of instructions that he gives himself, not simply just changing the words in it, but he says he had his father's signet in his purse, which was the model of that Danish seal. It was the same as the other one. He folded the writ up in the form of the other, subscribed it, gave it the impression using the seal, placed it safely, safely so that they would never know the, the difference. And the idea that you have to have all of this stuff on you just coincidentally, because it makes no sense as a story. <laughs> Which is, doesn't everyone carry all of this around? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just carry my fake Danish seal with me. My forgery kit, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I, I've often, I, I love that. There's such a lot of detail, which kind of, it just makes it more and more unlikely that that could ever have happened. But it does speak to the ways in which Hamlet is is at least aware of the kinds of, signals that these letters are giving um, that he has to copy in order for the letter to have the right effect on its recipient. I know I'm truly fascinated by the life of letters from Shakespeare's lifetime, and I'm sure our listeners would like to learn more about this as well. So in addition to the links to your work that we will place in the show notes, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? One that I, and this is kind of self-promotion, I know, but um, of Back in 2004, I put together an exhibition at the Folger Shakespeare Library with their curator of manuscripts, Heather Wolf, who knows a lot more about manuscripts than I do. And that was, it's called Letter Writing in Renaissance England. The catalogue of that is very interesting, I think, because we were able to reproduce in very good quality digital images of um, a lot of these letters. So you can actually see the kinds of issues I'm talking about, which otherwise are, are invisible to most people who don't spend their lives going to archives and museums. So that letter writing in Renaissance England, I think, is a an excellent resource, even though my name is on the front of it. There's a historian named James Daybell in England who's written several books on letter writing. He he went round a lot of the local record offices of England, making a huge census of originally the letters written by women in the period. Um, and that's and a couple of books have come out of that one on li- women letter writers in Tudor England and another on the material letter in early modern England. Um, and his work on women's letters is very fascinating because it, he's off, he's usually dealing with elite women and a massive percentage of their letters are, in fact, penned by someone else and usually a man. So it's a very strange phenomenon that a lot of the writing we have by women in the period is in fact written by men. Um, and so I think I would definitely recommend James Daybell's work. 
Oh, I can't wait to go and check out all of these. We'll place links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode so you'll know exactly where to go to find those. Now, Alan, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Oh, that's difficult. I think I would want something, Sound. this is going to sound very virtuous, and I don't mean it to, I would like to be able to do some work. So I think if I could have my Bible as the Vulgate Bible, I'd like a Latin English dictionary so I can actually read the Bible. It's not that I'm particularly fascinated by the Bible, but I think if, if I, that's just my way of getting both the dictionary and something in Latin at the same time. Or failing that, one of those period I work in, the 16th, 17th century, it started producing these polyglot dictionaries often with little scenes in, in in them and one of those might be interesting i just i would just like to be able to expand my languages and that might be one way of doing it that's i think that's a very intelligent selection i, I like this this <laughs> choice for your desert island so what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about oh well i'm working on francis bacon which i have done on and off for many many years i'm co-general editing a, a big new edition of Bacon's works. And so at the moment, I'm working on his late Elizabethan writings between 1596 and 1602. Some of those are letters, some of them are tracts, some printed things. It's a, it's a, a useful, usefully miscellaneous group of texts. So the, often I'm dealing with uh, issues I know nothing about, like Irish history or legal maxims. And so there's a lot of, even though I think I know Bacon pretty well, I don't know all of this stuff. So I'm, I'm enjoying doing that. It's, it's hard work, but um, I think it'll pay off in the end. Incredibly detailed, but you're bound to uncover some gems. That sounds exciting. Thank you so much, Alan Stewart, for being here and taking us through the history of letters and letter writing for Shakespeare's Lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. Get bonus history related to letter writing, including images of some of the examples Alan mentions today, all packed into the show notes. We have links to the books and resources Alan recommends, along with links to other of our podcast episodes, which cover some of the letter writing, including calligraphy and how to make Iron Gall ink, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. So find these things and explore more at CassidyCash.com slash episode 248. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 248. Eight. If you're a huge fan of our show and you like to have an insider look at how it's made and even take part in picking the questions, the guests, and contributing your own voice to our conversation here each week, then consider becoming a patron of our show. Patrons get sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the opportunity to submit questions once a month that they would like to have asked live on the air, and other studio-level bonuses that contribute directly to keeping that Shakespeare life on the air. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.